Amen. The reckless love of God. And all God's people said, yeah! I was loud if you weren't in here. It was, maybe it was loud to you too. I, I got to be real. Hey, a, a few things before we uh, get going here. Um, number one is that if you think I'm good looking now, uh, wait till you see me in, perp- on, in, in person, on purpose. On purpose, in person. Easy for me to say, obviously not. And uh, also, just to let you guys know that uh, make comments on Facebook, and a lot of times I'll say amen, then that means you say amen back. Um, a lot of times I'll say get it, that's when you say got it, and then I say good. And then you can say things like bring it, preach it, come on Steve, and practice that out, out loud at home so when we get back together again, you guys are ready to go. And so I want to start off with some powerful words that Paul penned, not only to the church in Corinth uh, 2,000 years ago, but also to us who are in this room today on April the 12th, 2020, and uh, beginning at verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers, I I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance. And that, uh, that word, first importance, is actually one word in the Greek. It's the word protos. And it's the same word that, that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6 when he tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the things that people in the world chase after will be added unto us. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, hey, listen up, because what I'm about to say is the most important thing. In fact, nothing in your life will be, ever be more important than what I'm about to say. And, okay, Paul, so what's so important? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Died for whose sins? He died for our sins. Understand Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt, because you owed a debt that you could not pay. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid that wage for us if we believe and surrender our lives to him. Amen? All right. Good comment right there. I like it. Uh, That he was buried and that he was raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures, and I might add also according to history. I understand the evidence in favor of the resurrection of of Jesus is extremely compelling. Like there are a number of things that you cannot account for other than through the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm just going to name a few right now for you. Uh, You have the 3,000 conversions on the day of Pentecost at a time so near and uh, and near the time and place of Jesus' death. You, You have the transformation of Peter and Paul. You have the fact that all of the disciples gave their life for the gospel. You have the fact that the worship changed from Saturday to Sunday. You have the continuation of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and of baptism, both which speak to his death and to his resurrection. Uh, You have the testimony of the early church in the book of Acts and throughout early church history that says, hey, this event actually did happen. You have the inability of the people in Jesus, say the Romans or the Jews, to produce the body of Jesus, which would have ended the movement right out of the gates. You have the changed lives of millions and millions of people over the centuries. And and this fact, to me, is just crazy when you really think about it. All time revolves around Jesus. 
Uh, listen, every time you date a check, every time you schedule an event on um, your Google calendar or your Zoom event, right? Every time a, a newspaper like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal dates that or People Magazine puts a date on their magazine cover, they are, whether they realize it or not, they are giving testimony to the fact that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. Paul says, I received, I pass on you a first importance. Say first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. You can check it out. You can talk to them. Though some have fallen asleep, they've died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Uh, Paul says that the most important thing is that Jesus lived and Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And listen, one of the things that uh, makes Easter of first importance is that Easter has the power to cause hope to rise in some of the most unexpected and unusual places. And, and that's what I want to talk about this morning in a conversation that I'm calling Let Hope Rise. I don't know about you, but I think hope is something that our world... And maybe you could use a little bit of right now. And so I'm going to pray us into this message. So let, let's just uh, uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we trust in your word. Your word is God-breathed. That's living and active. And Lord, my confidence right now is not in me. Uh, my goal, you know, as we heard on Wednesday night with the students, our goal is to make Jesus famous, not make us famous. Uh, my goal is to point to him who created the stars and who died on the cross. And God, it's not an accident that people right now are listening or watching. And if they open their hearts and ears and minds, they will hear from the creator of the universe. God, help me just speak in the way you want me to. You know, forgive my sins, for there are many. And if you can find a way to use me this day, uh, I would be so honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you know me, you probably know that I'm a huge sports fan. And to me, one of the most exciting things in sports is to watch a comeback. It's when it looks like it's game over for a team, and then in the final seconds, in the bottom of the ninth, in the fourth quarter, they have an amazing comeback. So this week, I went online and I started researching some of the greatest comebacks in sports history. And just to let you know, I'm not going to talk about Super Bowl 51 um, when the Patriots came back and beat the Falcons, though they were losing deep in the... I'm not going to talk about that, all right? I have some other ones. Hey, the first one's from baseball, all right? July 29, 2001. It's the bottom of the ninth. Two outs and nobody on, and the Pirates are down 8-2, to two, right? Game over, right? It's time to leave the stadium so I can get out of the parking lot before everybody else does. But after scoring three runs, this guy right here, Brian Giles, would hit a walk-off grand slam home run, and they would come back and win the game 9-8, to eight, all right? It's the, it's the biggest ninth-inning, two-out rally in baseball history. Here's one that I remember watching as a 12-year-old. Um, it, it's December, nine, uh, give, give my age here, um, but it's December, you know it anyhow, uh, 1972, the, the Raiders are playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm going for the Raiders. I'm from Baltimore. 
I hate all things Pittsburgh. I hate all things Yankees. It's part of my birthright, all right? I'm growing up in Baltimore. And, 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 and so it, it, looks like, it looks like the Raiders have it, right? It's, they're, they're winning 7-6. to six. It's 4th and 10. There are 23 seconds left on the clock, 4th and 10. Uh, and, and Terry Bradshaw throws a pass. It, it bounces off. A lot of debate about it. You know, safety, Jack Tatum. Flies back 10 yards. It's scooped up by Franco Harris, who comes in and scores a touchdown for the victory. Me and my friends went out and started hitting trees after that. Seriously, we did. <laughs> uh, and the trees weren't very appreciative. Uh, this is the NBA. Uh, 1995, game one of the Eastern Conference semifinals. The Knicks are up 105 to the Pacers, 99. 18 seconds left, right? Okay, game over, right? Not really. They came back and won, and, and Reggie Miller scored eight points in nine seconds to get the victory. Now, here's another one that I watched, and I, um, it's UVA versus Louisville, March 2018. Eleven seconds left on the clock. Game over, right? Game over. It's 66 to 59. Six points down, 11 seconds left. The final score would be 67 to 66, and UVA would score five points in .9 seconds. And my family and Louisville fans, I warned you I was going to use this one, all right? Uh, here's one that's known as the Miracle in the Meadowlands, November 1978. The Giants are 17, Eagles are 12. Less than 30 seconds left on the clock, and the Giants have the football. They have the football, and they're winning. All the quarterback has to do is take a knee. The dude tries to hand the ball off. That's uh, Herman Edwards right there, picks up the fumble and runs it back. And next thing you know, it's a 19 to 17 win. And what looked like certain defeat became a victory. One more. It's called the Miami Miracle. I hate this one, right? I was actually watching this on my phone. If the game's not televised, if you're a sportsman like me, you watch it has like a little field and you're watching the football move down the field. And, you know, I was watching this game and it was 33 to 28, seven seconds left on the clock. Patriots are winning. Dolphins have the ball on their own 30. Game over. Matter of fact, I put my phone in my pocket. It's a game over. Man, we, we got, we're number one seed in the playoffs. Not so. Not so. A pass, a lateral, another lateral, then a 52-yard run. And for some reason, they put in Rob Gronkowski instead of Devin McCourty. And Rob's laying on the ground right there. And there you go, the Miami miracle and the Patriots lost. But they did win the Super Bowl that year, so there was, there was a happy ending. <laughs> but if you think about it, there's a common denominator with all of those final comebacks, those last-second, last-inning comebacks. It's that it looked pretty hopeless. It looked like it was game over, yet hope came out. And I bet those who left early were pretty disappointed that they left. And so I, I, I want to ask you a question. When is the last time that you were hopeless? Like, like, like when was the last time that, that you looked at the scoreboard of your life and some area of your life and you thought, game over? There is no hope of any comeback for me right now. If you ever felt that way, or if you're feeling that way this morning, you're not alone. And in fact, on that first Good Friday so many years ago, that's exactly how every one of the followers of Jesus felt. Yeah, it felt like game over. It felt like game over. 
You, you see, when, when Jesus died, not only was his body buried in that tomb, but so was their hope. But then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. And listen, not only did he walk out of that tomb, but so did hope. Get it? Good. I was quick on the good. And so uh, what I want us to do in the next few minutes is to look at the last two chapters of the book of John, chapters 20 and 21. And as we do, we're going to see the risen Christ encounter four different people. Four people at the time who are most definitely thinking in their life, it's game over, there's zero hope for a comeback. And and yet in each encounter, as soon as Jesus arrives on the scene, we see their hope rise in some of the most unexpected and unusual places. Like if you were looking for hope, failure and doubt and grief and fear would like be the last places you would ever expect to find hope. You know, this week I was, I was asking myself this question. Like, what is it about the resurrection of Jesus that, that causes hope to rise in some of the most hopeless situations? Like, what is it? And the answer I came up with is that the resurrection of Jesus, what it does, it gives us a shift in our perspective regardless of the situation we're in, regardless of how dark that situation Okay, so let's do this. In the first encounter, we see hope rising in a place of grief and loss. Have you ever experienced grief and loss? Times that were like, no hope here. Well, so in John 20, it begins early on Easter morning, and Mary Magdalene, she had made her way to the tomb, and expecting to anoint the body of Jesus, she gets there, and the and the tomb is already open, and the body is gone. And, and she thinks that someone has stolen the body. So what she does, she runs back into town, and she grabs John and Peter. And the three of them, they run back to the tomb. And if you read the Gospel of John, John lets you know that he's a faster runner than Peter because he gets there first. But he doesn't go in. Peter goes in. Then John goes in, and they don't see a body. All they see are the strips of linen that had wrapped Jesus' body. Peter and John head back home. And then we read, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. I mean, can you imagine? She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers, it says. He's never called on that before. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. 
Uh, so Mary, she's heartbroken. She's very upset. And initially, she doesn't recognize Jesus, whether she didn't because of the tears or whether Jesus somehow kept himself from being recognized. She didn't know it was him. And, and Jesus asked her a question. He asked her, why are you crying? Which seems to be a, a pretty odd question to ask someone in a cemetery, right? I mean, if someone is in a cemetery crying, you kind of know why they're crying, right? They're grieving over the loss of somebody that they love. And so in John 20, Jesus meets Mary in her place of loss, in her place of grief, and he, he speaks her name, and he brings hope into her hopelessness. And, and, and so in this account, what we see is that not only is our God a God of power, but he's a personal God who cares about you and about what has taken place in your life. I mean, did Jesus, after defeating death in the grave, have to hang around the tomb just to be there? And talk to Mary. He didn't have to. Technically. But he had to. Because he's a God who cares. He's a God who cares what happens in the lives of his people. And understand. If you at this moment right now in your life. Are in a place of grief and loss. Jesus wants to express to you. The same care and concern. This Easter that he expressed to Mary. On that first Easter. Man, I'm so not kidding. This is like real. Uh, Jesus, Jesus longs to, to come into your life and just to ask you, why are you crying? Uh, Jesus just wants you to know that he cares. He, he wants you to know that, that even though he, he's the one that stretched out the heavens, that he knows your name. I understand your sorrow and your grief and your loss, your sorrow and your grief and your loss matter to Jesus. And he wants to meet you there in that loss. And listen, when he meets you there, he always brings with him his hope. A, a hope that reshapes our perspective about grief and loss. And, and here is this perspective shift I'm talking about. Uh, because of the resurrection, there is something more permanent than your grief. And loss. And when you're in your grief and loss, it seems pretty permanent, right? I mean, when you're in that dark tomb of grief and loss, it seems like that's all there is and that's all there will ever be. But because of the resurrection, there's something more permanent than your grief and loss, and that's your forever in heaven. Amen? Uh, Paul put it this way to the church in uh, Thessalonica in chapter 4. He says, hey, yeah. As Christians, we'll grieve, but we're going to grieve differently. And, and I just want to read these, these words to you. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, and we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until his, the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who are falling asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, as Jesus follows, we have something to look forward to. Listen, this life is temporary. 
not permanent. Your, your loss and your grief is temporary, not permanent. And what is permanent, what will last forever is your future in heaven. So because of Easter, we see hope rising in the place of grief and loss. And next, we see hope rising in a place of fear. You ever been afraid? Like, has fear, has fear ever gripped you, taken hold of you, paralyzed you? Now, there's all kinds of fears. As a matter of fact, the medical journal lists hundreds of fears, and they're all called phobias, which come from a Greek word that means fear or horror. And uh, I, I'm going to put a phobia and see if you can guess what it is. Arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Hydrophobia, the fear of water. Nyctophobia, the fear of the dark. All right. Arithno, arithmophobia, the fear of numbers. <laughs> and when you can't do your math homework, students say, I got arithmophobia. I wanted to do that homework, but I started freaking out with those X's and Y's, right? Okay. Um, here's another one. Chorophobia, the fear of clowns. <laughs> Poganophobia, the fear of beards. Seriously. Venustrophobia. The fear of beautiful women. I had that fear, and I had to overcome that fear in order to marry my wife, Laurie. Right. <laughs> come on, come on. Comments, right? That's, that's a good one, right? Okay. Feel free to use that, guys. Okay. But here's what I think the greatest fear is. The greatest fear is, is when uh, we're in a place of uncertainty, and we don't know what's going to happen next. Right, right, right. You know something's about to happen. You can see it coming around the corner, and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's beyond your ability to control. It's beyond your ability to do anything. Can you say COVID-19, right, and all the stuff that comes with it? I mean, like, there's, there's no button that you can push to make everything okay. And so there's this fear, there's this anxiety because you can't do anything about it. And listen, that's exactly where the disciples were. Sunday night. Now, they had been back and forth from the tomb, and, and now they're, they're locked in the room, right? You know, they gave their, self, their own self-induced stay-at-home order, right? They're, they're locked in the room, and they're afraid that the, the next knock on the doors will be someone coming with a cross that has their name on it. And it's into the setting that Jesus shows up. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together uh, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... Uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. How did he get in? You know, I think that's so cool. Like, how did he get in? Did he just pop in? Did he walk through the wall? You know, and, and I, I kind of see that room as symbolic of our fear. And Jesus just jumped right in, in the middle of it. And he says, right in the middle of the fear and says, peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands, his side. Disciples overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I think it's so awesome that the first words Jesus said were the very words that, Jesus, that they needed to hear. Peace be with you. And that's so typical of Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus has a tendency to give us the very thing that we need, even though we may not be expecting it. Peace be, be with you. And, and I want you to think about the transformation that's about to happen to these guys, right? They're huddled in this room in fear. But understand, these are the same guys, same ones locked in fear that God would use 
to change the world. The same guys, most of them, right? Tradition says all except John, for that matter, would give their lives in order to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, having an encounter with the risen Lord changed their perspective and caused their hope to rise. And here's a perspective shift. Because of the resurrection, you're not alone in your fear. Someone stronger stands with you and beside you. Right? Someone stronger stands with you and beside you. And if, like the disciples, you're locked in the tomb of fear right now, fear of the unknown, fear of something you can't, can't, not, you can't do anything about, just know that someone stronger, much stronger, is standing with you and is standing beside you. And that causes hope to rise, right? Because that hope is based on Jesus being there and not on your situation. See, whatever fear is surrounding you, Jesus is surrounding it. Just a few verses. David said it this way. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. And just say that to yourself. You Speak that truth to yourself. You are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. John said, the one who is greater, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Uh, here's an equation I, I, I want you to, to give your fear. Jesus is greater than your fear. Whatever your fear is, Jesus is greater than. And I love this in John, in, in Revelation chapter 1. John's kind of freaking out, a little bit afraid. And, and it, it says, then he, Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And if you're in fear today, Jesus wants to place his right hand on you and say, don't be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. So because of the resurrection, we see hope showing up in, in a place of grief and loss. We see hope showing up in a, in a place of fear. And we see hope showing up in a, in a place of doubt. In, in John chapter 20, verse 24, it tells us that one of the disciples, Thomas, that, that he wasn't there when Jesus showed up that night. And, and so when his brothers are following around him, they're like, hey, yeah, Jesus showed up. They're telling him what they experienced. And and he's, he's just not buying it, right? He's just not buying it. He's not buying it at all. In his mind, he just thinks, this is just wishful thinking. It can't be true. And he says this, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. And you know what? I actually like this about Thomas. You know, because he's honest about his doubts. Understand, it's okay to be honest about your doubts and your questions. Unfortunately, sometimes I think in church that we think we have to pretend. We have to pretend that we don't have any questions. Pretend that we don't have any doubts. Pretend that we have this rock-solid faith that never will be shaken. However, the truth is that most of us have some doubts. Or at least seasons where we're not sure of some things. And listen, I believe that church should be a place, right? Where we can come with our doubts and our questions and search for the truth, right? It appears that's the attitude of the disciples, right? They're not like, like, yo, dude, you're out of the club, kicking you out, right? You're not in the resurrection Jesus club, right? Because you don't believe. No, they, they didn't do that. 
they allowed Thomas to hang around, right? And, and see, it wasn't that Thomas didn't want to believe. He wanted to believe, but he just needed some more evidence. And eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Now the doors are locked again. I don't think because they're afraid. You know why I think? I think they wanted to see him do it again. They're like, how did he get in? He walked through. He just popped in. It's like, hey, we're going to wait. And I, I think that's why they did it. They wanted to see. And they, he still disappeared. They still didn't figure it out. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Thomas like, I don't need to do that. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So Thomas had his doubts, but here's the awesome thing about Thomas. You know, his doubts didn't cause him to just throw up his hands and walk away and just give out, right? All right. No, he hung around and stuck around and sought the truth. And eight days later, Jesus met Thomas in this place of doubt and hope began to rise and rise and rise. I mean, he became so convinced that tradition says that he preached the gospel all the way to India, where he eventually was martyred for his faith. And you know what? I, I think Jesus would like to meet some of you who are listening right now in that same place, in that place of doubt, right? Where you have some questions, where, where, where there's some things that, that, that you're not sure of. And, and I think Jesus would challenge you, right? Hey, stick around. <laughs> hey, don't leave. Stick around. He would tell you, hey, I, I'm not afraid of the truth. Yeah, Sure, have your questions. Ask your questions. Seek, seek the evidence. Weigh the evidence. Many have. People like C.S. Lewis, right? Um, um, Lee Strobel, um, uh, Josh McDowell, also a guy named Frank Morris who wrote a book, I, 99 Cents on Kindle. I, I one-clicked it this morning. I remember this book. He wrote it in 1930. Um, he, he wrote, the book was called um, Who Moved the Stone? And, and, it, and it was going to be a book that was going to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And the first chapter of the book is called The Book That Refused to Be Written. Because as he researched the evidence, he became convinced. So Jesus said, hey, hey, Jesus says, hey, Jesus can handle the truth because he is the truth. So, hey, weigh the evidence. And, and listen, if Jesus, if there's a possibility that Jesus is who he claimed to be and did what he claimed to do, then he warrants you giving it a thorough investigation, right? But then eventually he'll say to you, hey, stop doubting and believe, right? Many things that we can be uncertain of, but we can be sure of who he is. And here's a perspective shift. It comes in our doubts. Because of the resurrection, there is a truth of which you can be certain. Jesus is your Savior and your God. And once you're certain of that, everything changes. So we see, you know, it looked like game over for Mary, game over for the disciples, game over for Thomas. And yet we show hope rising in those various situations, in grief and loss and fear and in doubt. And, and lastly, um, one I can relate to probably the most, um, we see hope showing up in a place of failure. You ever failed? Not a fun place to be. I mean, have you ever failed so bad? And maybe you're there right now. You, know, you failed in your marriage, failed in your job, failed in a relationship, failed in, failed in trying to beat that addiction, whatever, whatever that, whatever. And, and you're thinking, it's, it's game over. It's just game over. I blew it. 
no chance of a comeback. And that's why I've always loved, uh, there's, there's two words um, that the angel spoke um, to the women who came to anoint Jesus' body. Two words, eight letters, that when I found them several years ago, that I go like, oh, that's sweet. I, I want to read it. See if you can find the two words that I think are pretty sweet. Uh, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look. I got, wait a second, that had exclamation points and I didn't seem very excited, okay? Don't be alarmed, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here! <laughs> He's risen from the dead! Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you before he died. Did you, did you see the two words? Go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. I mean, it's as if all of heaven watched Peter fail, watched him deny Jesus three times, and that all of heaven wanted to see Jesus get back up again. It's like they're saying, hey, 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 be sure to tell Peter that he's not left out. Be sure to tell Peter that his failure does not mean that it's game over for him, right? No wonder they call it the gospel, the good news of the second chance. And new beginnings. Amen? You see, Peter was in a place of failure. In John 21, Jesus has this powerful encounter with him. Where he reinstitutes his leadership role. And effectively, I was going to bring one, but I forgot to bring it. Effectively handing Jesus the baseball. I mean, Jesus effectively hands Peter the baseball and says, you know what, Peter? You are my starting pitcher in the opening day of the gospel, in the opening day of the church. You're still my opening pitcher, but before I can hand you the ball, there's some business we got to take care of because you did deny me three times. And here's what happens. When they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus cooked them breakfast. It's nice of him. He had fish. What are you eating for breakfast? Okay. Uh, Jesus, check this out. Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, take him back where? All the way to the beginning, right? He's not calling him Peter. Hey, let's go back to the beginning and hit the reset button here, right? He doesn't say Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I, I, I think he's talking about the disciples. Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know, just straight up, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told them. He asked him a third time. He denied him three times. This is canceling that out. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. You have three denials, three professions of love. And three times Jesus handed him the ball. All right. You go do your thing, Peter. And, and, and here's, the, here's the perspective shift that causes hope to rise in a place of failure. When you feel like it's game over. Because you messed up. And some of you have. And you're still in that mess up. Because of the resurrection. I love this. Your failure no longer needs to have the final word. 
And I worded that carefully, right? Because, like, that's your choice. No longer needs to be. And I just say, no longer is the final word. No, no longer needs to be. Because forgiveness is always available. Your failure, see, your, your, your failure doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to be your final, final word. It does not, your failure does not have to be the end of your story. Because forgiveness is always available. Paul was a guy who needed forgiveness. He had Christians murdered and arrested. And he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Hey, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That'd be you. That would be me. Then Paul says, of whom I'm the worst. He's saying, hey, look, if Jesus could forgive me for killing the people who loved and served him and followed him, then surely... And, and, and he didn't say deserves partial acceptance, deserves a head nod. Yeah, okay. No, it deserves full acceptance and embrace that forgiveness is available through Jesus Christ. It's available to the Christian who sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and our unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And as Peter in his first ball game, right, as he's throwing out that first pitch of the gospel, you know, he says in Acts 2, 38, right, Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know? And if you want to talk about that forgiveness today, if you believe in Jesus, you repent of living for you, the next step is you need to be baptized. We have a baptistry here. You have a bathtub at home. You, know, you, know, you can call me on the phone. We can talk about how to do that today. There's no reason to wait. You know, on Friday, Satan felt it with, on Friday, Satan felt like the uh, New York Giants. He felt like the Oakland Raiders, right? You know, he felt like the New England Patriots. Right? He felt like the Louisville Cardinals. He felt like the New York Knicks. Game over. We got this. He's dancing at his owner's box. Yahoo! We got this one. All hope seemed to be gone. But three days later, there was an empty tomb. And all hope that seemed to be lost began to rise. And it's been rising and rising and rising and rising to this very day. Even in some of the most unexpected places. Uh, let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for the resurrection, God. And I, God, I just pray for anyone right now who, God, is in a, a place of loss or grief. I, I pray that they would invite you into their life so that you can Give them the hope that they need. And let them know that there's something more permanent than the loss they feel right now. you got to lift up those who are afraid, Lord. There's things in their life that they have no control over, God. They're used to always being in control. They always have the answers. But right now, God, they have no answers. There's nothing they can do. There's no button they can push. And they are afraid, locked in fear. God, I, I pray you let them know that, that because of the resurrection, that there is someone who is stronger, who wants to stand with them and beside them, God. And Father, I pray for those who doubt, Lord, that they would just weigh the evidence, not run away from truth, but weigh the evidence and realize and be certain of the truth that Jesus is their Savior and their God. And, and God, for all of us who fail, may we realize that, that our failures are, are never final. Uh, they never have to be final because forgiveness is always available. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that these truths would just 
saturate our hearts and minds. I, I, I pray that, that you would, even as we sing this song, that you would resurrect our hope in times of loss, resurrect our hope if we're afraid, resurrect our hope if we're in doubt, resurrect our hope if we feel like we have failed. In Jesus' name, amen.